News. 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 New York City. FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel, here as always with Professor Christina Greer. We're recording Wednesday, as New Yorkers are still absorbing Monday night's nightmare, when 22-year-old Malaysia Goodson fell from the stairs of the 7th Avenue subway station while carrying her one-year-old daughter, Riley. The infant survived, but the mother did not. And while it's not yet clear what caused her fall, it's reignited with long simmering and badly overdue talk about the train system's lack of working elevators. We'll be talking more about that next week with transportation engineer and accessibility advocate Chris Pangolinan, a veteran of the New York City Transit Authority. This just in. Her death was related to a pre-existing condition, the medical examiner said, just as this episode was being edited Wednesday evening. Right now, we're talking with Mazen Sadahmed and Philippe Delaos of Documented NY about their big scoop on New York court officers appearing to defy the state office of court administration to tip ICE off about immigrants showing up for other proceedings. After that, Christina gets on the phone with State Senator Gustavo Rivera of the Bronx to talk about the deep blue New Day in Albany. And then Victoria Bekempis calls me to explain why Robert De Niro's divorce is, really, a matter of public concern. All these conversations have been lightly edited and condensed. And with that, welcome to NYC, Mazen and Philippe, and let's jump right in. So, stop me if I'm misunderstanding you. ICE wants to find, aggressively find, all of these undocumented immigrants. Many of these undocumented immigrants have court dates. The court system here does not want to cooperate with ICE because that would discourage people from from using the court system and being involved in it at all. But you guys have now found records that seem to show that, in fact, there is this cooperation, and and that's making news. Is that a... What's happening? And yeah. how did you find it? Yeah, I think uh, in terms of kind of the process of finding the documents and whatnot, I'll leave that to, to my colleague Mazen. But as far as context goes, you're right that uh, arrests in courthouses around the state have surged. And the reason for that is that ICE says that they have to arrest these people. Courthouses are a safe place to do it. People are already getting, you know, wanded to make sure they don't have any weapons. And they have the court officers around to, you know, back them up if anything is going south and you know they they say that this is just they're being forced to do this essentially because of uh new york's non-cooperation uh with immigration enforcement authorities you know new york city new york state don't share information proactively with ice in most cases and they don't have um you know ice personnel in the jails you know doing intake interviews stuff like that that maybe some other localities do so that that's kind of why this is happening yeah, we found out about some details around how, how these arrests came to pass. In uh, April 2017, there was a protocol passed by the Office of Court Administration in response to these arrests. There'd been an uptick after the inauguration of Donald Trump, and there was a lot of outcry about these arrests happening. So they issued this protocol, and a part of it, it was um, a protocol that stated that every court officer had to notify their supervisor if ICE came to the courthouse and notify the judge if ICE came to the courthouse. But one aspect of it was that every time there was an arrest, they had to file what's known as an unusual occurrence report. So these reports had existed previously. They're basically reports that court officers file whenever there's a disturbance in the courthouse. If there's a confrontation with a defendant, uh, somebody threatens a court staff, anything of that nature, they file an unusual occurrence report. 
So these reports were created every single time there was um, a law enforcement activity um, in the courthouses. So we filed a FOIL for every uh, unusual occurrence report that, about an ICE arrest that occurred between February 2017 and August 2018. And what we got back was 66 reports. And st these 66 reports showed a number of um, different ICE arrests that occurred on a number of different circumstances. But the six that we were most interested in were six that demonstrated some level of cooperation between court officers and ICE agents. And that's because the New York State court officers have said that they do not facilitate arrests um, at all between uh, when ICE comes to the courthouses. But we found that in two instances, they actually tipped off ICE agents. So an ICE agent came to the courthouse, told a court officer, hey, I'm looking for this guy. When he shows up, uh, give me a call and handed them a, a business card. Um, and Just when to clarify, you're talking about the, the, the actual officers who, who are uniformed and inside the courts and have their own union, right? And the courts administration also says that they don't cooperate. And the level of cooperation here is the, is the officers. Is Pre that... Precisely. Currently, ICE officers are arresting people targeted for deportation after they appear in court for unrelated matters. Okay, so that was going to be my question because – so just – we're referring to this fantastic piece that you and Felipe wrote on documentedny.com um, just for our listeners and we'll put it up on the website. And it's called Document Show New York Court Officers Alerted ICE About Immigrants in Court. But I, I think – can we back up just a little bit? Why is it that a court officer would coordinate with an ICE agent? Do they see each other as, say, brethren, or are the court officers somewhat intimidated by ICE agents? Why all of a sudden can an ICE agent come up and just say, Felipe, here's a business card. Call me when Stanley comes in. Is that a gram? New card. What do you think? Whoa. Very nice. Look at that. Picked them up from the printers yesterday. So I think there's a couple of pieces to this. I mean, first of all, I want to say that there's a, you know, as in any organization, there's a breadth of, um, uh, there's a breadth of different opinions within the court officer's core. Right. right. Not all of them feel the same way, but <clears throat> I've been reporting on this story for a while. I've been talking to their union president. A couple of pieces. So one is that they see their mission first and foremost as preserving order and safety in the courthouses. And, for a lot of them, that directive has been interpreted as assisting other law enforcement officers in conducting their business in the courthouses. And, you know, so far, the chief judge of New York has stated that she does not have the authority to bar them at all. So from their perspective, ICE agents are going to come. They're going to do the arrests. If that's going to happen anyway, let's try to help them out to make sure everything's over quickly and that, you know, everyone is safe in, while this arrest takes place. Um, as far as, you know, and, and I want to kind of like make a point here that the arrests, you know, the, the files that we really focused on were the ones that showed prior cooperation to the arrest itself where, you know, a nice agent had come. But the, the files also further substantiated what we already knew based on video evidence and whatnot, which is that when an arrest is taking place inside the court building, our court officers will often jump in, help wrestle immigrants to the ground, push away their attorneys, you know, kind of make sure that the detention itself takes place very quickly. Uh, every time I've spoken to the, the court officers union president, uh, a man called Dennis, Dennis Quirk, Quirk, he's brought up the fact that uh, arrests in the courthouses occur, you know, by a variety of federal agents. So it's ICE, 
and it's also FBI, and it's federal marshals, it's even NYPD. Um, And so it seems like they don't necessarily draw such a bright distinction between these different classes of kind of fellow law enforcement officers, whereas, you know, maybe we would say that obviously there's a difference between, you know, a criminal investigation uh, and a... um, you know, a civil immigration arrest, when immigration arrests are civil detentions, they're not criminal detentions, they don't really see the distinction. Uh, so, you know, when I, for example, when I had a conversation for this story with Quirk, uh, you know, I brought up the fact that ICE generally, when they arrive to make an arrest, they carry this thing called an ICE administrative warrant. So it's a warrant that look, I mean, looks like a warrant, but it's not signed by a judge. It's a warrant that's issued by an ICE supervisor unilaterally, and it doesn't have to go through any kind of judicial review process. Um, And, you know, very, very rarely ICE agents actually have judicial warrants. And so Quirk said, you know, we're not lawyers that determine what kind of a warrant somebody has. If they have a piece of paper that says it's a warrant, a warrant for somebody, that's it. So clearly, you know, it, it doesn't seem like they're thinking very deeply about kind of issues of what the distinction is between different right. types of law enforcement officers. They just want to assist. Sign up and support Documented, Documented New York and their fantastic work. Sign up and support FAQ, FAQ NYC. NYC. <laughs> the first hundred people to act, we will give you your own warrant, and you can uh, you can pass it to Dennis Quirk. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, but Felipe right. and 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 Martin just jump in when you can't. I mean, it sounds as though. They're essentially just taking pieces of paper and saying, I'd like to have a warrant against Harry Siegel. And I work for ICE. It's not backed by, I mean, it's like almost like U.S. currency. It's not backed by anything, right? It's just they they deem it fit and the courts and court officers are complying with it. But how I don't understand how we're even remotely calling it a warrant if it has no backing by any sort of judge or accusation other than the fact that we deem you to be, quote-unquote, illegal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I would just say really quickly that we've seen the consequence of this process being pretty, you know, fast and loose where all kinds of people have been detained, mm-hmm. uh, you know, including U.S. citizens. I mean, there's been several articles, right. you know, that that have shown that, you know, people have been taken into custody based on very, very flimsy evidence. And so mm-hmm. I think you're right that, you know, calling it a warrant in the way that we understand what a warrant is is kind of a misnomer. Yeah, and I think the the court officers will say, you know, they're a federal law enforcement agency, and for that reason, we have to comply with what they consider to be a warrant. But and this, the administrative warrants themselves are something that they've only started using more aggressively in the past two years as well. So, it from a court officer's perspective, I think they see them as fellow law enforcement agencies a lot of the times that, um, and they're complying with them and helping them do their jobs. Are they using more of the administrative warrants because localities, uh, you know, sanctuary cities, so-called, are cooperating less? Why is that? Yeah. Well, I mean, in general, and, you know, don't necessarily want to get too much into the weeds here, but, you know, the since the inauguration of, of uh, President Trump, we've had a return to something called the Secure Communities Program, which encourages, um, you know, state and local law enforcement cooperation with federal immigration enforcement pretty aggressively. There are several different types of memorandums of understanding that can be signed. Block funding for sanctuary cities. We block the funding. No more funding. We will end the sanctuary cities 
and have resulted in so many needless deaths. Cities that refuse to cooperate with federal authorities. We'll not receive taxpayer dollars, and we will work with Congress to pass legislation to protect those jurisdictions that do assist federal authorities. Uh, New York has largely gone the other way, tried to you know block that kind of thing from happening, and so yeah, I mean they're this is happening. You know they're they're using more of these warrants and they're pursuing these you know people more aggressively out in the community and in the courthouses, you know, conducting so-called at-large arrests, which are when people are not in already in custody um, because of the scaled-back cooperation and because they've also eliminated every kind of uh, priority guidelines for who they were taking into, into detention. So, you know, before, if you were, if you didn't have a criminal record and you had been living in the United States for a while, it was very rare that you, you know, you wouldn't be taken into custody because you just weren't considered a priority. And so that's gone. So, you know, basically everyone's fair game. I'm just, I'm borderline speechless. So while you all were doing this research, um, and Mazen, you said earlier you, you all had put out some FOIA requests and had to wait quite some time. Is there anything that truly shocked you all in this Research. I mean, I think a lot of our listeners have sort of, you know, we've been paying attention, especially since the Trump administration has taken over. We know that some of these things happened under the Obama administration. It wasn't a perfect administration by any stretch of the imagination when it comes to undocumented immigrants. But did you all uncover anything in the process of writing this piece on, again, for our listeners, documentedny.com? Did you find anything that was... Shocking, troubling, surprising, not what you all anticipated when you first went into this particular project. Not necessarily what we didn't anticipate, but one thing that I think the reports also made very clear to me and something that public defenders and prosecutors have been saying for a long time is just the effects that these arrests have on due process. Mm -hmm. So there was a number of cases uh, within the 6-6 reports that we didn't even um, mention in the piece there People were taken into custody before they saw a judge. Um, People were taken into custody when they were in lunch recess at a trial. Um, One person that we did feature in the piece was an attorney whose client was taken into custody in a parking lot um, while in, in lunch recess for a jury trial that he was having. So he was out for the beginning of that trial, but for the remainder of the trial, he was incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Now, the jury doesn't know what happened to him. They just know that one minute he was out and the next minute he was incarcerated. So now that's obviously from the the defense attorney's perspective, he thinks that that's going to prejudice the jury. Yeah, they're looking at him now saying, you know, he's a convicted criminal of something. Um, He raised a number of appeals with the judge um, to say that this shouldn't be allowed to happen, but they were shut down. Um, And I think there's going to be appeal in that case, specifically citing the immigration arrest. So the reports really made clear to me a lot of the things that have been being said previously about just the sheer disruption that happens due to these arrests. Yeah. I mean, what what it makes me think of is... um I'm a board member of BAJI, which is the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, which talks about, you know, Africans and Caribbeans are 10 percent of the undocumented population, but 20 percent of the deportations just because of residential segregation, hyper-policing, and um, is essentially this double-edged sword of being both black and undocumented. And so in some of your research, did you all talk to any of the family members? Because that, to me, is always so intense. It's not just the individual who is arrested uh, by ICE or taken into custody by ICE. It's the family members who are on the outside who have this heightened level of anxiety where they can almost barely function by going to school or going to work because of this this limbo and uncertainty. 
So did you all, were you all able to talk to any of the relatives of individuals who were directly affected? Unfortunately, no, we did aggressively try and search for the people that were mentioned mm-hmm. in the reports. We hid a lot of their names for when we right. published the piece because we weren't able to speak to them and get permission. The people that we did name in the piece, there had been other news articles about them. There was one man from the Caribbean whose arrest was featured in the Daily News as like a sign of this uptick um, in ICE's presence in the courthouses. Um, but we revealed that you know his arrest was actually because a court officer called ICE and told them that he was there. So those were the only names that we mentioned in the piece, but we would like to follow up for some additional pieces on that. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, not for this particular story, we weren't able to reach any of the families, but I certainly have talked to a lot of people, Mm -hmm. you know, in general as part of my reporting. And, you know, I think because of what I was mentioning earlier, where you no longer really need to have had any kind of a criminal conviction at all Mm -hmm. to be considered a priority for deportation, there's a lot of... The the profile of the people being taken into custody has shifted, and Mm -hmm. it's a lot more people that are... Long-time residents, mm-hmm. family members, no criminal record. And I think it, it, it certainly affects, um, you know, even just the visuals of it. I mean, the, for reasons that I still don't fully understand, detained immigrants, when they're brought to their immigration court hearings, are, are shackled mm-hmm. uh, at the hands, waist, and feet with just chains hanging off them, you know, like they're Al Capone or something. And, you know, I've, I've had children just be like, I don't understand. I mean, what did my dad do? And it's like, right. well, you know, nothing criminal. You know, right. this is a civil detention. Uh, so I think, you know, you're right that that it's very confusing for, for, for family members, even especially children, who right. don't really, aren't really equipped to comprehend what's going on. Yeah, I might use the word traumatizing. Sure. As well. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, to see your, your parent shackled. I mean, I think this reminds me of Black Power Mixtape with Angela Davis and her lawyers fighting so hard to make sure she goes to court in civilian clothing as opposed to an orange jumpsuit just because the mental and the visual from those deciding your fate, if you look like you're in criminal clothing, then oftentimes people uh, treat you as such. And that's something that you all touched on in the article on documentedny.com. So I wrote in 2017 a piece for The Beast about this guy, DeVito Watson, who uh, came from Jamaica when he was 14 and was a U.S. citizen and was serving a short sentence in upstate New York. And ICE came when he got out and said, you're with us now. And he ended up getting detained for about 1,200 days. It turns out, very predictably, because of administrators and some paperwork errors, he was a U.S. citizen. Um, and the, all the strange legal issues while well, he spent four years in prison were, were not actually relevant, which I think sort of, sort of goes from this story that you guys have documented, documented in why breaking the news about court officers cooperating with ICE to, to the question of how much of this is new with this administration and how much of this is, are the same issues that, that, that the immigrant communities have been dealing immigrant communities have been dealing with for many years. Um, I, I, I think. There's been so much attention, more attention paid with Trump here and his inflammatory rhetoric that, that, that it can be confusing to, to track this. And it'd be really helpful for listeners to understand what, what's new and disturbing, what isn't, and what's shifted in terms of New York state and city uh, cooperating or not with federal immigration authorities. Yeah, I think I can, I can start off on that one. Like, there is a really important distinction that you make because I think we're always faced with this problem of like, you know, what started when, what is the Trump effect and what isn't the Trump effect? You know, there's a lot of things that started in the Obama administration and that continued on to the Trump administration that a lot of people can't parse out the difference between. On the courthouse arrest, there's a great report that IDP put out on Monday that shows that 
the arrests have gone up 1,700%. You know, there has been, uh, I think there was 11 arrests in 2016 and like 200 and something arrests in 2018. So that's something where you can see there was a clear shift in tactics. Um, Felipe's reported extensively on the non-criminal arrests um, in ICE, uh, non-criminal arrests by ICE um, in the city that have also gone up dramatically um, since... 2016. They're still not at the numbers, uh, the peak of the Obama administration, but you can put a lot of that down to the fact that New York City and state are actually now working more aggressively to kind of stymie ICE and um, immigration enforcement more generally. Yeah, and to follow up on that, I would say actually, I think probably most people listening wouldn't know that um, detentions right now nationwide are 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 escalating enormously, but are still actually not quite at the level that they were during the peaks of the Obama years. And that's largely because of uh, local non-cooperation, uh, as you mentioned. But, you know, as bad as things are right now, th- obviously it's different because the profiles of who's getting arrested are a little bit different. But, you know, th- there is a lot of local pushback throughout the country. I mean, actually just uh, on Tuesday, um, the chief administrative judge of the Office of Court Administration uh, here in New York State, uh, Lawrence, Lawrence Marks Mark. was before a joint panel on public protection at the in Albany with the state legislature, uh, and he, you know, said that the OCA, given the pressure from both lawmakers, and, and this particular court arrest issue is actually the, one of the very few criminal justice issues where you can see every side standing together. The, everyone hates this. The defense attorneys hate it, and <laughs> the district attorneys hate it. I mean, when do you ever, you know, see something like that right. happen? Um, based on all that pressure, OCA is kind of internally considering policies that would um, limit ICE arrest to only when they possess a judicial warrant, kind of coming back to what we were talking about earlier. And, you know, in state legislators have also introduced a bill, the, the Protect Our Courts Act, which would actually make it illegal for ICE agents to enter courthouses at all and to perform any civil administrative arrests uh, for people going to, coming from, you know, court cases in which they were a party. I don't know if that would necessarily hold up in court, um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, they're definitely trying to stem it on a legislative level. So, so you have, like, New York making federal policy almost illegal or trying to with this new Democratic majority in Albany, yeah. it seems like, and, and then the federal government pushing back. But what's different now with, with, with Democrats controlling the entire state and some of the, the issues maybe we've looked at before that didn't quite get there? The, the, what, what could change? Well, I mean, in terms of, you know, specifics, I think we, we, the, the New York State Legislature recently passed the DREAM Act, which would provide uh, tuition assistance for uh, undocumented students here in New York, a lot of whom we, we also have professional licenses available to certain, um, you know, immigrants based on certain statuses like DACA. So people could actually, you know, end up affording SUNY and CUNY and being able to enter the professional workforce. That's a little bit different. Now, in terms of the legislative priorities in Albany for immigration advocates, I think the next big uh, push is going to be for driver's licenses for immigrants. Um, I think one of the issues, though, is that oftentimes for kind of moderate or, you know, centrist members of the legislature, every single kind of pro-immigrant bill ends up feeling like a concession almost. Mm-hmm. Like, they, you know, it's kind of like, oh, we gave you the immigration thing. Now let's, you know, punt it down the road till next time. You know, we gave you the DREAM Act. Why do you want all this other stuff, right? That kind of ends up happening a lot of the time uh, when something kind of big, flashy, immigration-related gets passed. So we'll see how things progress. 
I will say, just putting on my professor hat, everything in the American Constitution and in American democracy is based on compromise. Disputing over who should ride the tricycle certainly spoils their play. It isn't any fun, and besides, it's dangerous. Someone's likely to be hurt. It's usually slow and arduous, but so I will say that. But we're going to talk to um, a state senator later on today. And so is there anything that we should ask him specifically about Immigration and the DREAM Act? That's one. And then, Mazen, I wanted you to just talk to us a little bit more. You stopped by the courts the first day after the shutdown. And so I want you to sort of explain to our listeners what you experienced in the tone and the mood. So how about you take that question first and then... Um, you all tell us what you want us to ask our elected officials who are in Albany working on these issues first. Great, great. I'd be happy to take that. So the shutdown ended on Friday, mm. much to the surprise of many, without a national emergency. And that meant that the immigration courts were back open. So the immigration courts have been shut throughout the the non-detained immigration courts have been shut throughout the the period of the shutdown, which meant that Tens of thousands of cases have been cancelled. Um, some of these cases were going to get pushed back and rescheduled uh, to 2022, 2023. Backlog of immigration cases in the U.S. even worse. Most immigration courts are closed because of the partial shutdown, which means immigrants seeking green cards or clarity on their legal status are having their hearings postponed indefinitely. 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 I was interested to see what the first day back was going to be like. I think um, a lot of people were concerned. Some people really wanted to have their immigration court hearings um, for cases they've been waiting to hear for years. Other people were less excited about having their hearings. They maybe could have used a few more years to to prepare Mm -hmm. a better or stronger case. So I wanted to go down and see, catch the mood and see how people were feeling. As you could imagine, it was packed. Um, There was lines outside of 26 Federal Plaza first thing in the morning. Um, A lot of people were there who didn't have a hearing, just wanted to come back and be like, my hearing was cancelled, what now, what's going on? Um, A lot of lawyers coming in with cases full of papers that needed to get filed, but... They were pleasantly surprised, a lot of the lawyers, with how the clerks had handled the situation. I think uh, EOIR was pretty professional. They came in the day before and made sure everything was was ready for the next day. What did you just say? What was EOIR? It's the Executive Executive Office Office of Immigration Immigration Review. Review. So they're the department within the Department of Justice that deals with uh, the immigration courts or administers the immigration courts. So, yeah, the things went smoother than expected for a lot of people, but the backlog was already 800,000. And now we've got about, I think, 80,000 more cases that were cancelled and have to be rescheduled. And that will only add to that. There's also been a few hundred thousand cases that were previously administratively closed. These closures had let judges effectively put a stop to immigration proceedings without resolving the core issue, halting the potential deportation in the process. Stand by for further details. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program. That had been taken off the calendars and... Jeff Sessions, one of the last things that he did before he left um, the Department of Justice was say that all of those cases also have to be recalendered. So that's, I think it's 300,000 additional cases that have been reopened and potentially recalendered. And is this in New York or across the country? This is across the country. So in New York, I think the backlog is about 150,000, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Yeah, it's over 100,000. So I think. So that's 100,000 people whose lives are just in limbo and their families. 
Yeah. And those are administrative judges who are hearing these cases. Is that right? Yeah, so these are um, employees of the Department of Justice. So their boss is the Attorney General, which creates a lot of conflict, obviously, in that the Attorney General can often be quite politicized, as we're seeing currently, and um, may want the Attorney General, may want the immigration judges to kind of enact their agenda. Um, that hasn't been the case in previous immig- uh, Attorney Generals. They've kind of let the IGs do, IJs do their jobs. But the um, the current administration has really sought to put pressure on the immigration judges as employees of the Department of Justice. And these judges are appointed, elected, uh, selected. How are they made into judges? Because there's so many different ways that people become judges. Yeah, they're just hired. Uh, Literally just hired. Yeah, they're hired. Prosecuted by the attorney general. A lot of them actually are former uh, ICE prosecutors. Like their oh. former, uh, <laughs> there's no double. And then some there. of them are also uh, right. immigration defense attorneys. Yeah, you I have mean, people that were in legal aid that are now I ju- yeah. immigration judges. Okay. And how many judges are there for the maybe 1.2 million cases <laughs> you just added up? Not enough. Not <laughs> enough. Uh, I forgot the exact numbers, yeah. but you know, each each uh, immigration judge around the country basically has a workload through 2022 right now. Uh, so any new cases get stacked on top of that. Um, I think. Um, also, the, the immigration – I mean, the immigration judges union, they have a union because they are federal employees, um, has been very vocal about what they see as, as you know, interference in their ability to use their own judicial discretion, um, you know, to actually, like, fairly adjudicate cases. They think they're being pressured to basically deny everyone. And there's very the, – the, their actual grant rates for immigration benefits – very, very wildly across different judges, you know. So it's a, it's kind of a chaotic system. As Paul Moses has reported, who's yeah. working with you guys, the great the Paul Moses. Yes. yes, yeah, yeah. He's uh, incredible work on the immigration courts. So before we let you all go, what uh, what questions do you all have for any of our elected officials in Albany, and what should they be working on if you could set the agenda? Um, <laughs> I mean, I would ask them. There's a few things that are they're pending. I mean, the this ice and court stuff is is definitely salient. The driver's licenses are definitely salient. Uh, there's an initiative to try to actually get certain um, criminal cases to have a maximum of 364 day uh, jail sentences as opposed to 365 day because that one day actually makes a difference in terms of immigration adjudications. I think it's the one day to protect New Yorkers Act. Uh, medical coverage is big right now. So the New York Health Act obviously has been all over the news, uh, but there are actually measures that would be much less sweeping that would only actually extend, for example, the um, the essential care plan to undocumented immigrants who currently are mostly uninsured. Um, uh, I mean, I think those are kind of the biggest things I've heard of recently. Oh, the census is huge. So um, the, the New York Immigration Coalition and some other groups are calling on the uh, state legislature to appropriate um, a significant amount of funds for census outreach. As, as your listeners may know, there is currently litigation over whether the uh, Department of Commerce, which administers the census, can include a question on citizenship on the, on the census uh, so far. The courts have ruled no, but it's escalating into the appeals courts, and it may be decided in the Supreme Court. But either way, this whole kind of fiasco has caused concern uh, about whether you know immigrant populations, whether they be undocumented or documented, will actually respond faithfully to the census. So they're they're you know immigration groups are calling for there to be more on the ground um, you know state and federal personnel to actually try to convince people to participate fully in the census. So I think those are kind of the main the main things. Gotcha. 
Thank you all so much for coming in this morning. Can I just give a shout out to an event that we're having in a、Please. few weeks? Yeah, so,、um, yeah, and if you're into immigration, interested in the issues that Documented is covering, then we're having an event at Joe's Pub on February 13th.、Uh, we're partnering with a group called This Alien Nation. They do like a monthly showcase at Joe's Pub, highlighting immigrant voices.、Um, it's going to be a great event. It's going to be Ravi Ragbir, the executive director of the New Sanctuary Coalition, speaking.、Um, Mustafa Bayoumi, he's written a lot about、uh, Muslim Americans. Americans in the post 9 11 period.、Um, speaking about their experiences, there will be some music performances, some comedy as well. It will be a fun night out, so please check it out.、Um, you can find out more if you go to our Twitter. What's、uh, your Twitter? It's just at DocumentedNY. Okay, so that's February 13th, which is a Wednesday. Yes. What time? It's at 7 p.m. Okay. All yes, right.、Yeah. Check it out. Thank you all so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you for having、Thanks. us. Yeah. Armed with the documented NY crew's questions, Professor Greer got on the phone with Democratic State Senator Gustavo Rivera. Hello, Senator. Hello, madam. How are you? I just want to thank you so much for, for calling in.、Um, Absolutely. So we just talked to Mazen Zadokhmed and Felipe de la Oz. Of Documented NY, and they had a really great article on documentedny.com about ICE officers showing up in courts. And so I want to ask you just a few questions. One,、um, it's a new blue day in Albany. It's absolutely, absolutely a new day, yes. <laughs> and it seems as though the Democratic majority seems to have quite a bit of progressive legislation on the docket when it comes to dreamers, driver's licenses, absolutely. just an overall agenda. So can you talk to us a little bit more about what some of your priorities are? Uh, not just personally, but also as a democratic body, now that you all are in the majority in the Senate? Well, I think that one of the things that I said last year,、uh, as the elections were getting closer and closer, is that I, I knew that we were going to be in the majority. I did not know that the numbers were going to be what they are. We are a body of 63 members, and we have 39 who are Democrats, which is a supermajority.、Uh, and There is something that, that, that I repeated over and over again. We know that our main responsibility is to govern、uh, effectively,、uh, and that is exactly what we've done. Now, the, the, the fact is that over the last couple of weeks, we have been moving a lot of legislation that has been stuck for a long time, taking away anybody who would have guessed, you know, anybody who was saying, well, you know, this stuff is. It's just,、uh, it can never pass. I'm not sure if it's actually workable. All that needed to happen was that we needed to be in the majority. So, whether it was a DREAM Act, a Reproductive Health Act to codify Roe v. Wade, whether it was a slew of voting reforms, whether it was a Child Victims Act, or the gun reforms that we passed yesterday, all of these things, we needed to clear the docket of all the things that are basically no brainers. Now we're getting to the complicated stuff, including the budget. but... Our main responsibility still is, and certainly I share this, we need to govern responsibly for the state, but we will do so aggressively in a progressive manner. And we've already demonstrated legislatively, and、uh, we're, just, we're just getting started. I mean, this is less. I've been here eight years. We never pass things on the first day of session. Never. Well, I mean, <laughs> do you feel like the governor feels like it's a new day as well? It seems as though his behavior has shifted to the left quite a bit、um, now that you all are in the majority. We certainly fit. It, he. If he's, he's been saying it himself, right? There's a, uh, that uh, there is a lot of pieces of legislation that he's, that he's finally getting done. You know, he was, had a video the other day where he was just、uh, 
check marking, right? These, uh, these, this is the progressive agenda, the justice agenda, etc. Um, you know, and and the reality is that we're the ones that made it possible. The assembly have been passing this for a while, and there have been folks saying, oh, we need to do this or we need to do the other thing. What needed to happen was that Andrea Stewart-Cousins needed to become the leader. We needed to be in the majority. Uh, so the governor certainly, he's operating a little bit differently because he doesn't have to make the argument that the Senate makes things impossible for him. We actually think things make things quite possible for him, and we will continue to do so. That's great to hear. Can you talk to us a little bit more about, um, you said now you're getting into things that are a little more complicated. Can you walk us through some of the legislation, especially as it pertains to immigrants, where the rubber is going to hit the road and we might have some, some compromises and some tough days ahead? Well, as, it relates, well, as it relates to immigrants generally, we're glad to have passed the DREAM Act. But the fact that we passed it with the numbers that we did tell us that it was, it was a no-brainer, right? We're just talking about educational uh, opportunity, just access for undocumented people to uh, tuition assistance, which was really a no-brainer, something Texas has been doing for over a decade when New York can do it. Uh, now comes the complicated stuff. Now, some of the – you talked briefly about uh, ICE in courts. Uh, we have been in conversations amongst ourselves as well as with the Office of Court Administration about what are some of the things that we can uh, sh- and should do uh, and are indeed obligated to do to protect New Yorkers from the hands of ICE. There is, there is nothing yet that can be announced or what have you, but a lot of us know that it is a concern. We, we know that ICE is uh, using every opportunity that it can to, to put people in a, in a position where, they, uh, you know, where they're fearful uh, for their continued existence in this, in, in this country and in the state, and, we will, and we'll do what we need to do to make sure that we can defend them. So we're talking about folks. Uh, we're talking with the, with the Office of Court Administration to see what we can do in that regard. Uh, and there's other pieces of legislation, certainly one that I sponsored a few years ago, which uh, which I still do, which is called the New York is Home Act, which is quite uh, aggressive in its stance. And it's a complicated piece of legislation, but ultimately what it does is it creates, it, it codifies the concept of state citizenship. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has nothing to do with your immigration status, but has everything to do with what we, uh, and I say we, uh, the the organizations that worked on it, uh, the uh, Cardozo School of Law, Immigration Law Clinic, the Make the Road New York, and uh, it was a while back that we put it together. But the point is, we want, we believe that we constitutionally have the authority as a state to say these are New Yorkers and they have access to all of these things. That because of the federal nature of our government, uh, we have the constitutionally protected authority to provide access to or limit access to. Uh, right. So, Center for Popular Democracy, that was the other organization. But that is one of the many bills that we might potentially consider down the line. But mostly what we're talking about right now really is the budget. That's what we're going to be talking about the next couple of weeks. Well, we appreciate your service, and we really look forward to seeing what you and the rest of the Democrats in the Senate put forth. And we do promise that we will keep the pressure on you all um, to make do. sure that we, we keep moving this ball down the road. So, you're welcome on the podcast anytime. Uh, travel safely back and forth to Albany. And uh, I can't thank you enough for calling in. Council, please approach the bench. Hi, Victoria. So, what was uh, Robert De Niro doing in court this week? Hey, Harry. Um, so, yeah, Robert De Niro, he was in court uh, on Tuesday in his divorce proceeding. Uh, he filed divorce from his longtime wife, uh, Grace Hightower, on December 13th. Yes, I wish you hadn't done that, Hilly. Done what? Divorce me. Makes a fella lose all faith in himself. Gives him a 
Almost gives him a feeling he wasn't wanted. Oh, now, look, Junior, that's what divorces are for. Nonsense. You've got an old-fashioned idea. Divorce is something that lasts forever, till death do us part. Why, divorce doesn't mean anything nowadays, Hildy. Just a few words, mumbled over you by a judge. And uh, it appears that there's a, a custody dispute um, involving their daughter. And uh, as with uh, many a celebrity court appearances, he tried to, you know, well... I guess it's a mix. Some of them try to really go under the radar, and then some of them are just, you know, splashy. But in this case, you know, he was trying to go under the radar. He uh, he had the neither scraggly nor perfect beard, the dark fisherman beanie, his somewhat boxy black coat. It was uh, it was a pretty routine for a divorce uh, proceeding. Uh, lawyers were talking off the uh, not not on the public record for a bit of time with the judge, which is a. Uh, Irksome. Um, and then there was a, a little bit in front of the judge in open court where uh, we learned that, um, you know, it seems like uh, whatever negotiations were behind closed doors, maybe going in the right direction and they're due back in court uh, pretty soon. So what's it like for you as a reporter covering these sorts of proceedings? And why are so many of them in New York anonymous uh, versus anonymous or, or at least trying to be? Yeah, so uh, you bring up a good question. Uh, De Niro filed for divorce on um, an anonymous, the anonymous caption. And so uh, whereas, you know, a person going and filing for divorce, uh, usually the names of that person and his or her spouse uh, would be on the paperwork. Sometimes people can try and get, um, in a, you know, people can file for divorce under an anonymous caption, which means uh, no name. In order for it to stay under wraps, there's a pretty high threshold. There has to be a, a reason that's not purely, well, I don't want people to know about my uh, my personal business. So in, in New York City, in, in the area, obviously a lot of celebrities, a lot of rich people, a lot of powerful people. Sometimes when they try and get an anonymous caption, it's uh, for that reason, or at least seems to be, to not have uh, dirty laundry aired in public. Interestingly, Huma Abedin and tried to do that with her divorce from Anthony Weiner uh, <laughs> on the same day that, uh, you know, he was in court on the federal sex charge, which, I mean, of all, you know, people for, for whom the, the argument for a private, the, an anonymous divorce is kind of uh, questionable, it would be it would be them, considering how high profile they are. FAQ NYC is supported by a grant from Civil and by listeners like you. We are headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research at NYU, and we recorded this week from Alex Brooklyn's rent-stabilized Bleecker Street apartment with producer Jordan Gaspare and assistant producer Samantha Getzeg. Thanks to guests Mazen Sadakhmed and Philippe Delos of our Civil and Siblings, Documented NY, and to State Senator Gustavo Rivera and Victoria Bacampas. <laughs>